Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Recessions come and go. House prices go down, they go up. The social science of the business cycle isn't perfect, but we do know roughly that recessions happen and that even a credit collapse eventually repairs itself. The cycle rolls on. What happens, though, when something's coming and it's bad and it may never get good again? The fundamental feature of climate change really is that it isn't a cycle. You know what an interest rate cycle is. You know what a recession is. The particular source of each recession might be different, but at least since the 1930s and 40s, we have a toolkit and we know what we need to do. And sometimes we don't get it fully right. The fine tuning might be off, but we basically know how to handle it. Now, climate change is more like an avalanche, I would say. That's Armin Rezai. He teaches environmental economics at the Vienna University of Economics and Business. The value of your home, your retirement savings, everything that people in the middle class call wealth, these things are threatened both by climate change and the things we might do to avoid the worst of it. It's coming. And it's coming for finance, too. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for Alphaville. Last week, the Road Center hosted a conference called America's Climate Change Future. Colby Smith from Alphaville went to Providence. She and Mark Blythe from Rhodes sat down with Armin Rezai and Lint Barrage. She teaches economics and environmental studies at Brown. They started with a simple definition. What is a stranded asset? Stranded asset comes from the idea that you have something, an asset, that is profitable and has a good price because of its profitability. And then something happens unanticipatedly, and you suddenly find yourself in a situation where your asset is not worth that much anymore, and it's probably not as profitable anymore. And so the asset becomes stranded. So in the context of you know the fossil fuel industry, which is something that you uh, write extensively about, how does it work in that? industry. So the idea there is that you take the business as usual scenario without any climate policy as your trajectory. And markets basically think when you look at projections of fossil fuel companies, that there is an ever growing demand for their product. So that the projections say that we're going to stay on a business as usual trajectory, demand for fossil fuel will increase ever more because People start to have more cars in Asia and Africa. There are people who are becoming into the middle class. And all of that means that there is going to be a lot more fossil fuel demand. And people plan accordingly and think that the assets providing the fossil fuels are worth a lot of money. And then if you, under that notion and that rosy future, then climate policy can actually kind of ruin your party. And there's something now called peak demand. So if climate policy comes into play, Demand for fossil fuels will peak rather quickly and then decline after that. And so if you are one of the big oil companies, one of the seven sisters, then your business model is under threat and possibly you will be put out of business. So the assets that you have that were put in place on the, the belief that you can sell and produce for a long time suddenly find themselves under threat to become worth less money or even no money at all. 
And uh, Lynn, something that, you know, where there's some parallels there with what you've seen with the coastal home prices um, here in Rhode Island. And so can you just speak to who's at risk here, what the value of that risk is and the extent of the problem? Yeah, of course. I think, you know, it's one of those things where climate policy poses a risk to assets such as, you know, in the fossil fuel industry. The lack of climate policy, on the other hand, poses a risk to coastal housing and other vulnerable assets. So we have risks both from the policy and from the lack of a policy. And um, Reuters produced estimates in 2014 that about $1.4 trillion of real estate value at 2014 values is located within an eighth of a mile of the U.S. shoreline. Now, how those values are affected, it's a little bit nuanced because on the one hand, there's a true fundamental value loss resulting from continued increases in flood risk and potentially eventually permanent flooding or inundation or also some housing assets having to be abandoned depending on where you're located and how fast things evolve. So there's a fundamental value loss occurring because of that. But what we see in market prices does not necessarily correspond to trajectory of the fundamental value loss. So you're mentioning cycles before. This is a controversial statement, but prices sometimes may depart from fundamental value. And that's something that, you know, potentially we're seeing in coastal housing markets right now that the the market prices don't yet reflect the value losses that are to come. In the research you presented today, one of the things that I found most arresting was you went out and talked to people who actually live in these communities and surveyed them. And one of the things you found, correct me if I'm wrong, was that those who actually lived closer to the coast kind of have a, a pleasure premium, if you want to put it that way. They like it. They like being on the coast. It's really cool. And therefore, they, they actually discount climate change more than people who don't live in that situation. Is that correct? I would add a couple of caveats to that. So yes, there's an absolutely a pleasure premium or an amenity value, as we call it, of living close to the water. We see this in housing price data. People tell us the people who live by the water value it. And frankly, going around doing surveys, I came to understand why. I went on Zillow after I started doing a service and said, my gosh, it's beautiful. So it's definitely an amenity premium. I wouldn't say that therefore they discount flood and climate risk because we see a a wide variety of behaviors. So some people are at the coast, they know exactly what the risks are, but they just value being at the coast that much because it's beautiful. There are also people, however, who, you know, we find the people who live in the FEMA official high-risk flood zone are relatively less concerned about flooding than their neighbors who live slightly further inland tell us they would be if they lived by the water. So we find evidence consistent with some of the selection into those coastal high-risk properties being driven in part by relatively low flood risk concern for some people, but it's it's very heterogeneous. Just on that point, though, I mean, does the government play a role in that? I mean, we've been looking at the insurance, you know, industry for government and flood insurance. And uh, one thing that we found so compelling is the fact that, you know, a lot of the times the rates are so cheap for some of these living arrangements that it incentivizes people to live in areas that may not be inhabitable in, in a few years or so. Well, so the government really comes in in multiple dimensions. The National Flood Insurance Program is a dominant insurer against flood risk in the United States, and some of their policies are explicitly subsidized. Um, There was flood insurance policy reform passed a few years ago that was then partially repealed. Um, It's a lot of back and forth. So every house, depending on its history, when it was built relative to when the first flood 
rate maps were issued has a different subsidy rate. Um, there's also a debate actually in the literature as to whether the unsubsidized rates correspond or capture the real risk. Um, so there's really a, a great range of insurance rates. Some properties do feature rates that are much below the real risk. And yes, that does encourage potentially people to, to live in homes, um, not fully internalizing the risks that they face. So if I bring these two things together, then so I'm probably the oldest person sitting at this table. So I'm concerned with assets and retirement portfolios. And I have a nice passive portfolio that's put together by a nice company that does this for people like me. And according to one of the estimates I saw today, uh, around 20 to 30% of the capitalization of large stock indices involve carbon assets. And then on the other hand, around 40% of wealth in this country, at least, is tied up in real estate. So, and 40% of that seems to be on the coast. So we've got these risks whereby if we get serious about climate change, we massively devalue up to 30% of our equity holdings. And on the other hand, we've got all of our wealth tied up in homes, and those homes are much more vulnerable than we think. Why do you think this isn't an object of greater concern? either amongst investors, the investor community, or amongst you know politicians, public policy experts. Why do we have to dig a little bit to get to these issues? First, I want to make clear that when we talked about the 20 to 30% today, that was actually a selection of stock exchanges, which are in places where there is a lot of resource-based industries. So I think the global average would be lower than that. And uh, to come to your original question, I think it's subject of active research to for people to understand what actually the impacts of climate change and climate change policy will be on assets because so far we used to think about optimal carbon taxes and how to implement those carbon taxes and then we thought well the market will take care of it because once there's the price signal right once we got the prices right the market in a decentralized competitive manner will adjust itself into a direction where things go into a more sustainable way now, maybe also due to the Great Recession, asset prices and equity values have become a very interesting feature and people are actually looking at it more actively. There is more research which doesn't think that there's always this perfect foresight underlying asset prices in such a way that they actually capture the fundamentals that Lint was talking about before, but maybe there are imperfections, maybe people are biased in a way. Maybe there are some other market imperfections like moral hazard then if that happens and asset prices aren't fully rational or the investors investing aren't fully rational, then a couple of things can happen and those can amplify. And then we have a situation you just described. So that actually happened in the Great Recession where the epicenter of the earthquake was the mortgage market. And you could have something similar now with the fossil fuel industries where it spreads out into other asset classes, into other industries, and then there are contagion risks and uh, systemic risks, which people are now looking at. And I think in a couple of years' time, we'll have a much better understanding what that actually is and how likely or unlikely it is and how policy could be designed in such a way that it avoids that. In talking about retirement funds, we live now in the age of index investing. And so, I mean, is there something about today's market structure that makes, um, you know, having exposure to an Exxon or a Shell or any of these very carbon central companies that much more intense than it was in years prior? I mean, in a way, our financial system and market products that we have make everything a lot more interconnected. Is there a chance that the ripple effect is, is a lot bigger than we imagine? Probably it is, just because, as you said, there are now 
more products which link markets together. There are these passive funds. There is a lot of automated trades going on. And I think that just increases the risk for systemic shocks. In general, I just wanted to make a point that you can think about divestment can either be seen positive or negative. There is research from Columbia University, I forgot the authors, who basically said, if you have a portfolio, there is in a way a first mover advantage to moving out of the dirtiest parts of that sector. So what they're saying is you can actually make your portfolio rather proof, even if you don't divest completely, but you just get rid of the baddest and dirtiest producers in that sector. And because those will be the ones who are hit the most, and so those are the ones you want to, if you get out early, you won't be exposed to that much. I thought that was an interesting argument, but as I said, there are arguments on both sides. Coming back to what you said initially about the cycles, I think the fundamental feature of climate change really is that it isn't a cycle. If we had gone through more of these cycles already, we would have a history and an experience to deal with it. You know what an interest rate cycle is, you know what a recession is. The particular source of each recession might be different, but at least since the 1930s and 40s, we have a toolkit and we know what we need to do. And sometimes we don't get it fully right. The fine tuning might be off, but we basically know how to handle it. Now, climate change is more like an avalanche, I would say. It starts out rather small and it started out 40 years, 50 years ago. People started talking about it and it's gaining momentum and it's gaining more momentum. And now we're having a podcast on this. And I think that's also the reason why people are taking notice more now and people are talking about the impacts on financial assets and all other aspects of economic life, really. I just want to bring in the notion about systemic risk when it comes to housing, because as Mark also mentioned, housing is a key component um, where people put their wealth and uh, they may not own stocks, but, you know, they'll own a house or they um, have at least a, a mortgage on a house. And so my question for you and the example of Miami was brought up in the talk today. And so a massively wealthy area home prices increase in this last year. So what happens to a Miami when you have, you know, massive amounts of weather related damage that comes in? Or what happens when you have to move a Miami? And I think that was the question that was posed today in the conference. Well, I think we have historical guidance on what happens after extreme weather events. But the critical question is, is that experience reflective of what will happen in the future? Or because we know that the environment is changing, are we going to use a shock to update our information and then have a fundamentally different response next time a big storm event hits? So I, you know, we can look in the past, storm after storm, we see housing prices decline. Typically, you know, storm hits, you know, vulnerable home prices decline 10 to 20 percent. Within 10 years, they go back to baseline. Is this going to remain the case? going forward, if we think these are reflective of a new reality, we don't know. That's an open question. And you mentioned tipping points. I think that's one of the central reasons why this is such a, a significant risk to study is, you know, these communities, once, you know, lending practices change or an insurance, you know, mandate becomes more strictly enforced or the rates go up, there is a potential for a tipping point where people move out, they try to sell their homes, there's more supply than demand, prices plummet further, tax bases are eroded, they have to increase rates, that makes remaining homes less attractive. There is the potential for that kind of unraveling, but do we know if, if that's the way it's going to go? Are cities going to come in? Are they going to build protective infrastructure to save those assets? We just don't know how it's going to go, and that's why it's important for us to study what these risks might look like. 
So this brings in the public finance aspect, which was also mentioned today, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, local taxes on property fund an awful lot of what government does. So let's go back to the National Flood Insurance Program. I believe the figure today, and I'm getting all my figures wrong, so just jump in and correct me, but I think it was something in the order of only 30 to 40% of homes actually have the requisite insurance. That insurance itself is subsidized. Now, that's a moral hazard problem straight away because you're encouraging people to do something they normally wouldn't do because there's a subsidy. Now, if you take away the subsidy and price it efficiently, you could lead to exactly that kind of death spiral in property values, which would then impact public service, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a real set of diverse and diffuse interests that aren't necessarily coordinated, but nonetheless have an interest, and a very strong one, in maintaining the status quo. But maintaining the status quo, ultimately climate change, nature bats last, if you want to put it that way. Nature doesn't care. Nature's going to plow right through that. So you have a policy consensus which is dysfunctional. And you have a set of interests which are demobilized. And you have basically an increasing monotonic function of change through climate. How can we be more creative and more adaptive without engaging in swapping one moral hazard problem for another? Are there any good ideas out there about how to become more adaptive? So not all flood insurance policies are subsidized. It's um, one in five, depending on when they were purchased and depending on the community and how old the house is in the firm. So it's very heterogeneous and a lot of the policies are not subsidized. So it's a minority that are subsidized just to, to, to clarify that, that point. I think you're touching on a very deep question here, which is how can you bring in the multiple constraints that are in everyday life and in everyday decision making and the political domain? Because Lint and I are economists who are coming from a theoretical perspective, and we try to think about what would be the optimal, quote unquote, policy implementation of avoiding climate change, of making sure that um, coastal properties are protected, stuff like that. And when it comes to the actual nitty gritty part of it, you need to make sure that you understand whose interests are impacted, how by this policy, and how can you create a coalition such that actually everybody who could have said no wants to say yes. And I think that's a big problem of all of this because nobody has a good answer to this. It's an information issue at this point, right? It's an information gap where you have you know, the reality on the ground, but then there are forces working against that to keep that status quo in place. And that made me think of something that you mentioned in your presentation about the fact that, and in your work about flood maps. And I found that so interesting because the flood maps is organized by the government and it's the, they're instituted by the government and drawn by the government and they haven't been updated, right? If you could just kind of speak to the, the resistance to do something like that and to have updated flood maps and, and what could potentially, from a market standpoint, lead to that kind of resistance, I think is really interesting because, I mean, what happens when you, you know, have coastal properties that suddenly the price crashes when the flood maps are revised? There's, again, many moving parts. So the flood maps, some of them are updated very recently. It's really a continuum. So we checked the data last year. One in six maps was over 20 years old. But some of them are brand new. So it's really a continuum. And some flood map updates are initiated by communities themselves that approach FEMA and say we want a new flood map. Sometimes it comes from FEMA. It's really, um, it, it depends on the community. Up-to-date information is critical from an efficiency perspective for markets to price risks correctly and help people make 
good decisions. But if the price before the flood map update wasn't right, you stand the risk of these rapid corrections with new flood maps being issued, which put homeowners at a lot of risk of a rapid loss in home value that, you know, is their retirement savings. And so this is a really, really difficult question of, you know, in economics, we often talk about trade-offs between efficiency and distributional concerns. And this is exactly what it is. So I think having more continually provided information, a wider variety of information than the stark FEMA flood maps, you know, 100-year floodplain or not, insurance mandate or not, I would speculate, we don't know this, but I would speculate that if there was more of a range of information being updated more frequently that was less subject to these battles of the mandate and whatnot, that homeowners could adjust more subtly and gradually in accounting for new information to avoid some of these sharp, sudden value declines. So one of the things that we often talk about in this podcast and in economics in general is incentives. We love our incentives. We love our individuals making choices and the incentives that they face. And this seems to be a particularly murky area for incentives because they're cross-cutting in many ways. So the other thing that we sort of pitch for many times is technology in the sense that if we can't do the right thing, which would be to do all these things that are very, very difficult and consume less and change carbon and so on and so forth, there's a kind of Hail Mary pass out there, which is, well, tech will fix it. And that's actually built into many of the models in terms of, you know, if we're going to get to this target over this time, we're assuming there will be these tech fixes. So I'm just asking the two of you as economists who obviously, you know, follow this very closely. This is your field of work. What do you think of the sort of the tech Hail Mary pass on climate change? Do you buy it or do you think it's a distraction? Well, you usually say a Hail Mary when everything else fails. <laughs> and so in that sense, that's how I approach technology as a savior for climate change. I think there are a lot of things that we could do and we could have done 20 years ago, which would have spared us a lot of pain that we're in right now, but we didn't. And we probably will continue not to do what we should Give be doing. Give us an example of what we could have done 20 years ago. Well, the thing is, if we would have imposed a carbon tax 20 years ago, it could have been much lower. It could have affected less aspects of life. But there is a concept of the carbon budget, which basically says, if you boil down all of these climate models of the global climate, you can basically say, give or take, there is a certain amount of cumulative emission since the Industrial Revolution and peak temperature. And so the more of our budget we spend in the past on very inefficient ways of burning CO2, the less of the budget we have for the future. And so we're painting ourselves into a corner, and then we hope that there will be technology, which will be a secret door behind us that we can just walk out of. And that is the way that I approach technology. There is a second aspect I want to mention is that... Um, Technology really has been surprising everyone in this area. So PV and wind has been underestimated for a long time. And not only that, the projections have underestimated it also over time. So it's like people were underestimating it and kept underestimating it, although they've been proven wrong in the past. And so I think that that's probably will be a game changer. But again, the problem with the policy is that if you would have had a carbon tax earlier on, this technological innovation could have been much faster and more encompassing than it has been. So those are two aspects that are communicating with each other. And I think there is a problem to that. And ideally, there will be a silver bullet that we can pull out, which is negative technology, carbon negative technology, which basically allows us to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere once we emitted it. And we wouldn't have to change our ways. There are promising initial steps in that direction, but the scaling of it just isn't there yet. So that's unfortunately not a Hail Mary we can speak. 
I would just second what, what Armin has said. I mean, when it comes to coastal protection technology, humans getting together to to try to control water and flooding is, is, is as old as the hills. This goes back to the Sumerians, right? This is what humans have gotten together to do for millennia. And we have technologies that can deal with it within certain ranges of sea level rise. But one of the challenges in this arena is it's extremely expensive. It takes a long time to build these large-scale defenses against seawater. And what's been happening in some areas now in Venice, for example, the level of sea level rise they planned for when they started these projects, you know, 20 years ago, are now outdated. And the science and, and the economy has caught up to them. So I think when it comes to coastal protections, there's also room for technology to save the, you know, let us have our cake and eat it too, save those asset values and continue on, you know, using fossil fuels, et cetera. But there's more of a lag and, and more challenges and less potential, I would imagine, for these sudden innovations that are a game changer that we have in the energy sector. And oftentimes, I mean, I think what uh, the theme that we we see here is this notion of the quick fix or the silver bullet, as you mentioned. And it just got me thinking about ESG, the environmental, social and governance standards that a lot of the financial industry has been um, really pushing um, as a way to make money, but also treat the environment well. And do well yeah. <laughs> while doing good. Exactly, exactly. And in what way are we just kidding ourselves that through some process like this, like ESG, that has no really clear standard at all, really, that this is a way to effectively combat climate change? It's a tough answer or a tough call in a way because it's not ideal, but it's better than nothing in a way. So I think it's good to have focus on this issue of, of environmental impacts of a company. And I think it's good to provide guidance to investors who say, well, I actually want to find investments which have do well on the a scorecard of these ESGs. On the other hand, as you said yourself, it would be good to have some kind of standardization in order to understand who is really doing what and what are they pretending to do? And is there a lot of greenwashing going on or not? So I would say they're imperfect, but at this point, at least they're better than nothing. Could it be said, though, that they're almost doing a disservice because in the name of ESG, people think that they're actually doing something to help the environment and then um, they don't do anything else to change their behavior? I would say no if there are further steps in that direction. So I think it's a first step in the right direction if there is step three and step 10 and step 100 that where we can really then find the companies who are low on their carbon footprint and are not just doing something and outsource the dirty aspects to their supplier so they can say we're not emitting any carbon, then yes, it's good. If we stay stuck on this um, square one, then it would be a problem. So one of the things I think about, of course, being older again, and therefore closer to either retirement or death is the following. Um, Climate change seems to be a bit of a one-way bet for investment, because if all of the dire projections and predictions are, are right and the science is sound, and we think both of those things are, then you really have to try and focus on this and make it the one thing. Because if all those projections are true, we're all dead, right? I mean, it's that dire, right? So from an investor's point of view, should, wouldn't it be rational to basically, whether it's through the auspices of a Green New Deal, massive government action, subsidies, some kind of target investment program, to really try and invent that green tech, the sort of the carbon negative technology that would really make a difference and really push into that? Because if it doesn't work, we're all dead anyway. And if it does work, you will get to print money for a thousand years. 
because you will have the tech that everyone else will need. So if I think of this from a kind of long-term investment perspective, it seems to me that this is a tremendous opportunity, and yet the investor community doesn't seem to see it that way. What do you think's going on? It's a tremendous opportunity only if the price is right. If you don't reap a financial reward for contributing to solving a problem that's currently free to contribute to, then that reward does not yet exist. That reward is contingent on the regulatory regime. So how do we go back to incentives? How do we change the incentives such that it becomes rational to do that? Put a price on carbon emissions. It really is that simple. It just comes back to that. You got to pay the price. Well, yes. I mean, markets work. The reason markets are phenomenal is because they allocate resources towards their best use. Now, to do this, markets need prices that reflect the value of the use. And so if prices don't reflect the value of, say, you're burning a ton of oil, a gallon of oil gives us so much economic value because we can fly and we can drive, we can heat our homes, we can do amazing things with it. But there's also X dollars in damages to the environment. If those damages to the environment are not accounted for in the price, the price is wrong and we will allocate too many resources to burning those those gallons of oil. So in order to have a reward for coming up with a substitute, we need those damages to be priced in. Uh but in a way, your question also reveals the problems that we're in because the fundamental economics are just so blatantly obvious, but still we're not getting anywhere. There was, I forgot the name of that proposal that a couple of um, Republican senators or economists who used to serve under Republican administrations put forward a couple of years ago, where they basically said, look, you really should price carbon, and this would be great for everyone. And it might not be good for the stranded assets that we talked of initially when we talked about stranded assets, but on average and in the aggregate, this is what you should be doing. And still, there's it's like it's in a vacuum and nobody hears what everybody else is saying, or at least not that relevant part of the American U.S. legislature, which would have to listen to it. And maybe to be a bit more optimistic, even if the prices aren't there, there are still pockets of opportunity and these pockets are aided by what's going on in different places in the world. So, of course, the U.S. is now more of a hindrance to climate policy than other places. The fact that Germany did subsidize renewable energy for a very long time at a pretty high expense for the German consumer is aiding everybody else around the world now. So it is a global public good. And now studies that were reported on actually in the Financial Times lately um, commented on the fact that renewable energy is now competitive with existing coal plants who basically wrote off all of their costs of capital already and still renewables, which are built new, are compatible with these incumbents in the industry. And at the same time, you can also look at what uh, Elon Musk did. People thought he was crazy when he said he's going to do Tesla. And now the market cap of Tesla is so big because he really did go in there and did what you said. And people are believing in what he's doing. And that made him a very rich man. And if I may just add to that, I think we should give credit to a lot of efforts that have existed in the United States, both at the federal and state level, going back further in time and, and even now. So, you know, starting with the oil crisis in the 1970s, Department of Energy developed a lot of research partnerships with industry and made a lot of critical technology advancements that we now use for wind turbines and solar, et cetera. So there are efforts at the federal level. I think something like 30 states have renewable portfolio standards. I'll have to check my numbers. You know, California, there are places that are pricing carbon emissions. So there are 
price rewards in different places for different things. It's just from an economic perspective, this patchwork approach is much more costly to achieving emissions reductions than if you had a harmonized price that was the same everywhere and leveled the playing field. And the problem is the incentives that are in place are just not getting us far enough. So when we think about two degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius even, which is the aspiration of the Paris Agreement, the incentives that are in place will not get us there. And that's, I think, the underlying issue. So we're basically shifting, slowly shifting the peak temperature down the further we go, but it's still way up high and we need to get it down to 2 or 1.5. So rather than prices being the problem, could it be, and I, I hate to do this, but I will, uh, could it be that markets are the problem? And I don't mean, I know, I know, sorry, sorry, sorry. But in the context of something beyond market failure, here's two little bits of anecdata that perhaps uh, illuminate this. So I was talking to Adam Tooze the other day, and he pointed out that uh, as part of their stimulus in response to the, the financial crisis, um, China basically put up more cement and concrete than the United States has done since the founding of the United States in what was a three-year period. Now, that's a lot of carbon emissions right there. On the other hand, I believe it was in 2015, China installed more solar than the United States has in one year. So when you have a much more sort of technocratic, top-down, hierarchical command and control, I don't care about the prices because I am the market, you might get more done. Is it likely that a country like China is going to save us more than all of our decentralized markets? Well, China is also the one funding a lot of the coal-fired power plants being built in Southeast Asia and Africa at this point in time. So there is a great respect that I have for what the Chinese government has achieved in decarbonizing their industry and their energy sector to a certain extent. But there is a bit of that ESG thing going on that we talked about before that they're kind of saying, yes, look at us, we're pretty good. And at the same time, they're building coal-fired power plants in Bangladesh, which is an irony in itself, because if sea level rise occurs, those coal-fired power plants will be underwater, literally. Although I think it's important to remember that also we, we use fossil fuels because they're in a very efficient storage of energy and the fossil fuels we have used have lifted billions of people out of poverty. The industrial revolution is the reason that we are here and have healthcare and vaccines and, and heating and comfortable lives. And the fact that there's a lot of poor people who with economic growth will also be better able to face the damages from climate change is something that I think we shouldn't discount. So it's, you know, William Nordhausen in one of his many amazing books, A Question of Balance, the title puts it very well. It's a matter of balancing all of these things. That, you know, we care about democracy, right? So I, I would take a messy democracy that makes progress more slowly any day over um, alternative forms of governance where potentially progress is slower. That's my preference. We're, you know, we're a big world and people can, can, can disagree about these things. But I think it's important to remember there are trade-offs and it's more of a question to me of humans. We care about asteroid defense. We care about protecting against pandemic. You know, there's a lot of things that society should be investing in for, for our future. And we want to maintain a perspective that climate is one of them. It's important, but there's other things we care about. And I want to add another anecdata point to this podcast, which is... That I hope we've just coined a fun term. <laughs> That's good. Anecdata point. <laughs> uh, which is that uh, it was the US who put the first man on the moon. And that was a democracy with a free market. And basically, it was able to utilize and harness resources towards a societal goal, which they implemented. So I don't think it's a systemic question or a question between different forms of systems. It's the question if it's a priority or not. And 
that's the problem that's people or at least politicians perceiving the preferences of voters think it's not an issue. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links, but as always, we want to understand when you listen and what you want to hear. So please email us, alphachat at ft.com. For my part, I don't know what I promise to do. This whole thing scares me. <laughs>